everyone. Leadership Now with Dan Pontifrac. We're in conversation with Dr. Kosla Kushlev. Kosla is an assistant professor and researcher at Georgetown University. He investigates how constant connectivity affects societal health and well-being. He's the principal investigator of the Digital Health and Happiness Lab, aka the Happy Tech Lab, Dr. Kushlev slash Costa, thanks so much for being here today. I've got a lot to dig in with you because uh, I've spent a life watching the evolution of society's perhaps unhappiness grow and perhaps the correlation to technology, in particular smartphones. So we're going to get into all of that, but why don't we start here with the, sort of the opening salvo question. What, what is happiness? What's this, your definition at least, and sort of how are you using that definition perhaps, right, to kind of inform where your research takes you? Yeah, so happiness is definitely a loaded term. And even we researchers who study happiness admit that happiness is something individual. People can define it for uh, themselves. There's a lot of philosophers who wondered about what happiness is. Uh, but you're right that in order to study it scientifically, we need to define it. And so uh, most commonly, the way we define happiness is more with the term subjective well-being, which uh, at uh, its basic, uh, it has three components. So uh, we have life satisfaction. So this is kind of a cognitive component of happiness. It has to do with how you evaluate your life. When I ask you, you know, how satisfied are you with your life? Um, and then there's more the emotional component or affective component of happiness. And so this is the frequency and intensity of positive emotions uh, and negative emotions. And of course, negative emotions is, you know, subtracted from your uh, overall happiness score. But that's uh, what we you know, so when you see uh, results about, um, you know, researchers found this and that about happiness, uh, it might be any of those three components. Uh, most frequently, it is uh, life satisfaction. So a lot of the um, uh, stuff on does money make you happy? Is income related to happiness? Uh, often it is this question about how you evaluate your life. There have been uh, other researchers, uh, Seligman, uh, Killingsworth, that have looked at happiness, and some argue that uh, it's a state of flourishing, you know, flow, or even, you know, as the Greeks would say, eudaimonia. How do you relate sort of that notion of flourishing or flow or eudaimonia to some of your definitions of, you know, a life satisfaction? Yeah, absolutely. So, um... I mean, it, it turns out that, you know, eudaimonia is a um, sort of a meaningful concept and eudaimonia tends to be more about, you know, a life of meaning, uh, a life of um, where you, you know, really reach your true potential, kind of going back to Maslow's pyramid, self-actualization. So, but as it turns out, um, you know, we often think of those two things um, in opposition to each other, right? Uh, do I want to live my life in a hedonic way and uh, experience as much pleasure and positive emotions as possible? Or do I want to live my life in a meaningful and, you know, self-actualized way? But it turns out that when you look at the data, uh, those two things, uh, eudaimonic well-being uh, and hedonic well-being are very highly correlated. And so when you think about it, 
for most of us, when we, you know, what, what, uh, when, what we do is, um, you know, meaningful and important to us and so forth, that would translate into having more positive emotions and less negative emotions in our daily life and evaluating our lives uh, more positively. So they're very highly correlated. Now, of course, there are, you know, situations like, you know, we can think of Viktor Frankl's um, account of, you know, when he was in a concentration camp, obviously, in that case, you know, he wasn't experiencing a lot of hedonic well-being, not a lot of positive emotions, but had a high sense of meaning. So there are certainly those situations, but for most of us, um, those two components of well-being are very highly correlated. So this distinction isn't as, as stark as, as we might think. Okay, well, thanks. That's uh, really, really helpful. Now, the crux of your research, if I may, I think is about the exploration of how, you know, constant connectivity to the interwebs, uh, whether through smartphone, laptops, what have you, particularly smartphones, I think, is impacting our, uh, our health, indeed, our well-being. And so you've kind of been investigating over the years on sort of the harnessing of technology to improve actually health and well-being and how technology might actually promote a positive behavioral change. So before I get into kind of specific questions about, you know, smartphones, et cetera, that, again, you've done some wonderful research with, help me understand, first of all, what you see really as sort of the baseline, i.e. This, this notion of is technology harming or hurting um, or helping is it is it all the above and and sort of set set the stage uh, if you will uh, on that point sure yeah i mean it seems like the answer is definitely all of the above uh, a lot of the research on this topic has really kind of looked at net effects meaning you know looking at you know uh, the entirety of people's media consumption and how that relates to positive negative emotions and so on and so when you look at it this way, um, I mean, there are various teams of researchers is still uh, being determined, but some uh, of those researchers would tell you that, you know, when you look at the net effects, uh, it's about as harmful or as beneficial as eating potatoes or wearing glasses. So very, you know, uh, um, an effect that's close to zero. Uh, and, so, um, and so I would say, in some ways, however, for me, that's actually a very interesting finding, even though it's a non-finding, uh, because if you think about how amazing this, these technologies are, right? So your smartphone allows you to you know, get information anytime you want, to connect with anybody you want, um, to stay in touch with friends and so on. And so the fact that, you know, whatever, 10, 12 years later after the first uh, iPhone, I guess it's 15 years now, um, time flies. But, yeah. um, you know, where, I mean, I would expect that, you know, society should be happier. We should be seeing these positive effects. So the fact that, you know, what we actually see is an effect close to zero uh, when we look at all the overall effect uh, should suggest to us that there are certain costs of these technologies that kind of compete with their benefits. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're not actually happier. And so what I've um, tried to do in my research is to try to document some of those um, situations in which technology can actually hurt uh, our well-being so that we can design the technology in a way that avoids those situations and individuals can also 
think about their own technology use to improve um, uh, their well-being without uh, incurring the costs. And Costa, some of the, the research that you get into is, is downright fascinating for, uh, I guess, a, a technology behaviorist like me who's been in organizations right through from the evolution of Napster to where we are today with uh, various social medias and you know the, the metaverse. So what I found fascinating about some of your research was the smartphone influence of well-being. And you don't necessarily suggest influence is, is only negative, but that there's three hypotheses. So let me, let me explain to the audience what I'm getting at, and then maybe you can fill in the commentary here. So you, you believe through your research that the, the influence of well-being through the smartphone actually creates three kind of hypotheses. So there's the displacement hypothesis, if I get this right. And displacement hypothesis is that the smartphone is actually replacing other activities that people uh, might otherwise be doing if they didn't have that in their pocket. The second hypothesis is interference hypothesis, where it's actually getting in the way of you and your uh, activities, whether they're concurrent or, or in the moment or what have you. And then the third hypothesis, again, if I get this right, is I think complementary hypothesis, where in essence, you're affording access to information and activities that's unavailable, meaning this is a good thing. So take us through the three hypotheses, if you will, and help uh, us as a listener understand where you're, where you're getting at with this research and what we might do with it. Sure, yeah. So the displacement hypothesis has been around for a while. This is certainly not something that I have invented. So if we think about back in the day, Putnam's um, research and books on television and how um, uh, that's um, undermining social capital. So, you know, it essentially is the displacement hypothesis. So Putnam's argument was that, you know, with, um, you know, more and more people getting TVs in their home back in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, activities such as, um, you know, community bowling uh, and so on that got people together in person uh, were, you know, was declining. And so, um, and so he argued that that undermines uh, social capital. So, uh, of course, um, fast forward to today, um, you know, it's the same thing. So we spend a certain amount of time on our phones. I challenge your listeners and viewers to uh, check their screen time um, and be amazed at how many hours a day. My screen time certainly isn't very low. It runs certainly in the three to four hour uh, range a day. And so the question is, well, what what would you have done with these three or four hours a day uh, if you weren't on your phone, right? And so, you know, that the answer might be, well, I would have exercised more, I would have spent more time with friends, I would have gone to a bowling alley, whatever the, the case might be, this is time that, um, you know, we spend on our phone. A, another big one, I should say, is sleep. Uh, you know, we know Americans don't sleep enough. And, um, I'm assuming some of the those three hours are right before bed or uh, in the morning, and so uh, so that's the displacement hypothesis. So with the interference hypothesis, this gets us more uh, closely to this um, the, the omnipresence of technology that has really you know become um, you know something different uh, qualitatively 
uh, with the uh, with everybody having a smartphone now, right? So now you know, unlike uh, a laptop or a desktop computer, we're using this technology while we're doing other activities, right? So maybe it's while we're exercising, maybe while uh, it, it is while we are having dinner with friends and family, and so on. And so a lot of my research on smartphone has focused on this uh, interference hypothesis. Uh, and uh, looking at what happens when we use our phones, when we're spending time with others. Now, from the research on happiness, we know that one of the biggest predictors of happiness is actually spending time with others, um, and especially friends and family. And so when we, you know, when our attention is... Um, um, you know, directed to our phones rather than our friends and family, we lose some of those benefits. And, you know, in, in my research, we see this over and over again. Uh, we see it, you know, for example, parents spending uh, time with their children are, um, you know, derive less sense of a meaning when they're spent more time on their phone. Um, we've seen, you know, friends and family having dinner at a restaurant, uh, enjoy the experience less when they are uh, using their phones uh, or even just having them on the table. Uh, and anyway, the, the list goes on. Uh, the final hypothesis is the complementarity hypothesis. So the idea here is that, yes, so these devices provide lots of information, entertainment that might not, not otherwise be available. Uh, and so one study that we did with this hypothesis was to basically get people, students, uh, young people to try to find a building uh, at the University of British Columbia campus, which is a pretty large campus. Uh, so we found buildings that they didn't know where they were and told them, go find them. And then we randomly assigned people to either, you know, have their phones on them or not. And we didn't tell them to use their phones or anything like this. But of course, everybody who had their phones on them used their phones to find the building. They got to the building faster. Um, and they were in a better mood when they got to the building. The people who didn't have their phones on them uh, still found the building. Um, but they also, um, you know, took a little bit longer time. And so overall, you know, if we think of happiness as positive emotions, you know, the phones in this case were definitely useful in making people, you know, uh, happier. Um, however, we also found that uh, the people who couldn't rely on their phones had to mostly rely on other people. So they asked other people, they talked to more people. And then at the end of the search, they actually felt the greatest sense of social connectedness. So when they did not have their phones. And so, so this kind of tells you that, you know, these hypotheses, even though complementarity kind of sounds positive, you know, it, even when we are, um, you know, overall the net benefits are positive, there might still be costs even to those positive, um, positive aspects of, of technology. Well, th that actually segues nicely to another question I wanted to ask you about some more research that you did. And that was about an experiment I believe you did with smartphones and notifications. And so uh, I'll set it up and please provide the commentary uh, analysis. So if I understand it right, you kind of set up, um, you know, your, your, your trial based audience with, you know, notifications where it just notifications came as usual, like all the time. 
Then there was a, a, a cohort of individuals in the research group where you batched the notifications, I think three times a day. And then you had another group that had no notifications. And so if I understand correctly, you're, you were basically assessing uh, the smartphone technology and almost like you know the, the Las Vegas uh, slot machine poll of, of notification in the adrenaline and the dopamine hits that come with it and seeing where people would, would necessarily, I guess, relate to or what emotion they might emit. So if I got that right, tell me yes or no, but also fill in the blanks as to what you discovered. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, this is exactly right. So we randomly assigned people to one of those three conditions. We actually had a fourth condition as well, where we batch the notifications once every hour. Ah, um, okay. But um, interestingly, we didn't make much of that condition because we actually found no difference between once an hour and business as usual conditions. So as they come. Um, and so it seems like batching once an hour is a little bit too frequent to see any effects. But yeah. uh, when the batching was uh, three times a day, so people basically they got their notifications in three daily batches. So whatever notifications came before that um, time of day, they were all delivered at the same time. Uh, and so these people, uh, this group of people felt less stressed, they uh, had a better uh, moods, and all of these effects were explained by improvements in their attention. So they felt like they were more attentive uh, to whatever they were doing, and uh, that explained why um, they felt better, less stressed, and so on. Uh, and so I think this study basically shows uh, that, you know, essentially is a I guess, uh, um, well, we, we don't like to use the word proof in, in scientific uh, of course. discourse, but uh, it at least suggests that the interference hypothesis uh, might, you know, be true. Um, and so, uh, you know, because when people are distracted by notifications as they come in, they get you know, that interferes with their other activities throughout the day, and that's not good for happiness or stress. Um, now, interestingly, we also found that, you know, delivering no notifications, so in that condition, people actually experienced uh, less benefits, and we think uh, the reason why that might, might be is that when you don't get any of your notifications, well, then your mind is starting to, you know, uh, distract itself. You're kind of wondering what are you missing out on? And we did actually find that the people who didn't have any uh, notifications throughout the day had a high level of, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, and so they didn't experience the same benefits in terms of stress uh, and so on. And so, um, and so it, you know, it's, it's this, I really love this study because it shows that we don't want to be throwing the baby with the bathwater, right? We want to find uh, the golden mean um, where we are not distracted all the time um, and we can focus on things that matter, but we also, you know, don't want to be completely disconnected um, and wonder what we're missing out on. So do you, do you think then as a consequence, like the, you know, the high tech companies, uh, you know, in particular, Apple and Google, 
are, and Samsung maybe, are, are listening to research like yours with, you know, new inventions like do not disturb times uh, that you can set up on your phone so that you can have some focus time to yourself and not worry about the, you know, the slot machine draw of the dopamine hit and the, you know, the, the new red flag that you get or the red check mark that someone has liked your Instagram post or what have you. Like, do you see high tech waking up to this problem? I do. I do see, um, you know, a lot of um, new, you know, features. So for example, um, the latest version of the iOS um, system on the iPhone actually does have this batching thing integrated, uh, you know, and it invites you to set it up when you, you know, when you open your new iPhone. Uh, and it's basically, you know, it's very similar to what we did in that study. It, essentially, it tells you, you know, how many times a day, I think that it's called notification summary or something like that. It's not called batching, but, you know, you can actually tell it what apps you want to get notifications as they come in and what apps you want to be included in the um, notification summary. You can decide how many times a day you want a notification summary. And so um, now, you know, the, the question of, you know, whether Apple had seen that paper <laughs> of ours about batching, I don't know. Um, I think part of, um, you know, what's going on too, is that even without the research, people are already aware that, you know, we, you know, we are way too distracted by technology, right? Like, it's almost like you don't need to read a paper to know this in your personal experience. And I think a lot of these, you know, tech people being surrounded by tech are probably, um, you know, more aware than anybody else that uh, that can be a problem. So anyway, so I don't know if my research has, has made any difference, but yes, that new feature on the iOS is you know, exactly what we did in our study. So um, um, I guess it's encouraging. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, and good on you. Now, uh, I want to end with a segment really focused on the pandemic and face-to-face -face interactions. Because again, uh, a good deal of your research, uh, which is profound, really focuses on the subtle kind of social cost, if you will, of that constant smartphone checking, that constant technology draw, and that you you propose in essence, you know, the constant connection is actually undercutting the emotional benefits of face-to-face -face social interactions. And I think you detail kind of two or three different ways in which this is uh, undercutting. So first, before we get to the pandemic type of uh, dialogue, tell us a bit about, again, your analysis and synthesis, right, of those social costs and what, you know, somewhat obviously we have um, opportunity costs that go with it. Yeah, so exactly. The idea is that the more we have going on without our smartphones, the more we have to lose in terms of happiness. And so uh, when we use our phones while, I don't know, we are at a festival or something surrounded by people, we you know, we might miss out on social interactions and so on. Um, when we are stuck at home because of a pandemic, then, uh, you know, the um, uh, theory is that we should see more of the benefits of these technologies and less of the cost because, 
again, they have less to interfere with. Um, and, um, you know, there's some uh, recent research, not from uh, my lab, but looking at this precise question during the pandemic, and they did actually find that um, you know, the, the time people spent on uh, online socializing with others is was related to was positively related to well-being mm. uh, when social distancing was at, at its highest level during the pandemic. Um, when social distancing was less high, we know there was quite a lot of variation in the past two years. Um, spending more time online was actually unrelated to well-being. And so the idea here is that, um, you know, uh, again, when there is, we have an opportunity to actually be with others uh, and spend time with others, then uh, spending time talking with people online might actually not produce higher benefits to well-being because we are missing out on, you know, something that could make us even happier, which is in-person social interactions. And so where are we, I guess, today? So we're, we're recording this, you know, uh, in the first quarter of 2022. And, you know, we're hopefully ending uh, or entering into a, if not post-pandemic, endemic world. You know, we're slowly getting back to some normalcy. Offices are reopening. What have we gleaned over the last two years in your research of the pandemic when it relates to what should we be looking forward to, or maybe even addressing, you know, in our lives, perhaps even in our organizations, when it comes to, you know, your your line of work and your focus on the research. Sure. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I think what we have learned is certainly that in person is better than uh, virtual in general. Um, but we have also learned that this hybrid model where we sometimes can join virtually, uh, you know, and, and join a meeting virtually via Zoom or whatever can actually be quite useful. And so, um, you know, I, I mean, I think the research is still um, happening as, as we speak on this topic, but I think in general, um, you know, the research on the hybrid workplace, even before the pandemic, suggests that uh, hybrid can be, uh, you know, hybrid meaning, you know, you go to work some days, you work from home some days, can actually be uh, the best of both worlds. Again, not throwing the baby with the bathwater, uh, but, but, you know, kind of, um, and so I think uh, the fact that we have really learned how to use uh, these technologies, Zoom for uh, for work especially, can be really beneficial. And so I wouldn't, if I were, you know, a company or an employer, um, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily try to go back to, you know, uh, requiring employees to be at work every day. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, it is also clear that uh, working entirely from home, especially in the long term, is probably not a good solution. Uh, it might be more convenient uh, in the shorter term, but in the long term, there's other things like, you know, sense of belonging. Um, we, we've all heard about uh, Zoom fatigue and there's, you know, uh, research suggesting that it is real. Uh, but I think part of the, you know, reason why you know, Zoom fatigue might be um, something that um, that has happened uh, is that um, 
is that um, we are, you know, in, in, in the real world, in, in, in person, we can, you know, quickly, you know, chat with somebody uh, and ask them a quick question. Uh, when we're all remote, everything needs to be a whole meeting. And then the default is, you know, half an hour, an hour, you know, and so we schedule all these meetings. So I feel like, um, you know, Zoom and, and working from home has made meetings, uh, you know, uh, multiplied, uh, right? And so, uh, so I think um, being able to see your colleagues from time to time is good, but um, it doesn't necessarily need to be every day. Right. I love it. Uh, I'm, you had me at hello, Costa. I totally agree. So final question, and uh, we'll let you go. You've been so generous with your time. What, what are your uh, tips or techniques or, you know, your must-haves or must-dos for individuals as they, I guess, become better at using their phone such that they are enter into a, a state of better well-being for themselves? Sure. So uh, I would say, I mean, research is me-search is something that researchers sometimes say, uh, meaning that we often research things that are relevant to our own lives. Um, and so I would definitely say that I started researching uh, smartphones because I started, you know, being very distracted by my uh, smartphone. And so I wondered what the actual... Um, ah. Uh, effects are on others. And so, um, you know, and so I would say, you know, people are often, because of my research, are often like super self-conscious about using their smartphones around me. Uh, and so I just want to assure everybody that I'm not judging anybody. And I actually use my phone quite a lot, <laughs> not always in the most productive ways. Uh, which is why I, I study this. Uh, but one thing that I uh, do is I tend to keep my uh, phone on silent the majority of the time. And so, you know, I do use the batching and summary, but, you know, obviously not for all apps. So it, that, that does allow me to kind of take a little bit control uh, over my attention from my smartphone. And so, you know, I, I mean, I look at it frequently enough, trust me. So I, there's no chance that I'll actually miss, miss something really important just by keeping it on silent. And yeah. so I think if you are like me, um, you know, keeping your phone on silent uh, can be a, a, um, a good step to reclaim some of your uh, attention. Another thing, um, you know, we know that uh, from out from some of my research, uh, just you know, even asking participants to have their phones on the table without telling them to use it actually right. undermines enjoyment. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say, you know, if you want to focus on the people around you, keep your phone in your pocket or in your bag or whatever. So those are two um, easy, practical things to do. I love it. We, we must be cut from the same cloth because uh, I have I, long ago, I mean, years ago, turned off all notifications, phone on silent, except for my wife, who has a special vibration for me and my three teenagers who also get a special vibration. Everything else I could care less about. And I am in charge of when I'm going to, you know, uh, draw down on the slot machine to see if someone liked my post on Instagram. Uh, 
Dr. Koshlev, this has been an honor. Thanks so much for this. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, well, they can go to my website, which is kushlev, K-U-S-H-L-E-V dot com. Um, and they can find me on Google. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty unique last name, so <laughs> Google away. <laughs> well, uh, we're, we're glad as a British Columbian, you are a PhD uh, degree owner from the University of British Columbia. Well done. Thanks for this today and uh, best of luck with the rest of your research. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Dan.